This episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is brought to you by Kellogg. Kellogg is a leading global plant-based food company founded on the benefits of holistic well-being. Their partnership with the Chef's Manifesto allows us to reinforce the important role that plant-based foods have in our food systems. Through their plant-based foods, they're driving growth through purpose, helping to address the interconnected issues of well-being, food security and climate resilience for people, communities and the planet, and drive positive change for 3 billion people by the end of 2030. Kellogg are committed to doing their part to ensure that healthy and sustainable diets are available and affordable to everyone, and the Chef's Manifesto supports this ambition. They are committed to feeding 375 million people by the end of 2030 through food donations, feeding programmes and disaster relief. Since 2016, Kellogg has donated nearly 1.3 billion servings of food to people through hunger programmes and partnerships with food banks globally. Additionally, they're supporting breakfast clubs in 32 countries and helping to expand school and summer feeding programmes in the United States. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is life. Hello and welcome to the last in this series of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a columnist and the author of new cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Please join the Chef's Manifesto, subscribe, rate and like us below. Your feedback is important to us, not only so that we can make sure we are tapping into the subjects you care about, but to help with our reach too. In this episode, we'll be looking at how we can make healthy, nutritious food more accessible and affordable to more people. A little later, I'll be talking with British chef Arthur Potts Dawson and South African celebrity chef Lorna Marseco about their views on this. But my first guest is the global lead of wellbeing at Kellogg's, Alison Greenhouse Ball. Hello and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Hello and thank you very much for having me today. Such a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your role at Kellogg's. Do you know, it's a, an enormous privilege, but I lead wellbeing for, for Kellogg's. Um, I've been with Kellogg's for nearly 20 years, which is which is quite incredible, actually. That's a long time. Um, before then, I was in academia. But what does kind of what does that mean? What does wellbeing mean? Well, at Kellogg's, we've um, we've redefined kind of health. Uh, so we used to think very much in terms of human health and nutrition and having sustainability as something very, very separate. And more recently, we've joined those together because we believe that actually it's really important to think of that as a 3D kind of construct, to think about human health, planetary health and where food kind of fits into the centre of that. So essentially, that's my role to think about what that means for us in a partnership with others in the organisation. How do we take that forward? How do we change our food, our communications in order to make sure that we are living a sustainable life? Absolutely. And you you cannot separate sustainability and health, can you? They're just one and the same. No, we cannot think in silos anymore. We have to think together. So I think we should just get straight to it. I'd love to know how you think or what you think the role of communication has in the food industry. It's critical. 
you know, we have to communicate, we have to express views, we have to introduce new concepts, new foods, new kind of ways of kind of new behavioural changes um, to people who enjoy foods each and every day. And so communications can take many, many, many um, different layers. So if you think um, we have the privilege of being inside millions and millions and millions of homes throughout the world, People look at kind of our communications on packaging. They look at kind of ads that we might um, put together and communicate. We also um, talk um, and communicate through kind of governments and through partnerships. So unless we talk to each other, unless we introduce new kind of concepts and new ways of eating, then we're never going to reach the goals that we need to to achieve in terms of the sustainability goals. Um, And so communication is absolutely critical. And I'm particularly interested in how we um, motivate consumers. So what does, you know, a good communication look like in order to motivate behavioural change? You can't just put anything on a front of a packet, you know, and expect someone to be interested or engaged or Mm -hmm. think differently. Um, And I've worked for many, many years looking at front of packaging, uh, labels, And um, we know that actually that doesn't work. And so first of all, you've got to understand what barrier or what solution are you bringing to that particular person? What are you going to smash? What barriers are you going to smash? How are you going to make them think differently? And then how are you going to surround them with many, many messages about the same thing? So having something on just a front of pack or just an ad simply isn't enough. You know, you have to keep repeating that message, you have to be engaged and you have to be provocative sometimes in, in your message. So what's Kellogg's doing in particular to help communicate and pr- pr- help really produce a better food system? So how you bring that to life for consumers is really important. So how do you make the issue of sustainable sourcing compelling? It's actually it's really tricky because we know that just putting something on a front of pack isn't necessarily going to work. How do you provoke um, interest? How do you make sure that, you know, every time a consumer is looking for that on the shelf, they're going to choose your product that, you know, advertises that that is sustainably sourced? And so one of our examples is one of our iconic brands, actually, is Cornflakes. We're here in the UK today, even though this obviously applies to us globally. In Cornflakes in the UK, we have a huge kind of banner on the back of the pack talking about how that's sustainably sourced and working really closely with our farmers. How can we make that work across the world? Our ambition is to make sure that we're partnering with at least a million farmers by 2030 in order to kind of make sure that we are looking for those products that are sustainably sourced but we have that pull from the consumer. And unless we communicate it in the right way, we're not going to get that pull. And we need a pull. And I mean, what's really interesting to me is kind of my approach to sustainability has always been to support small-scale farmers. But of course, we are kind of a global food system and Kellogg's is very much part of that. And sustainability has to be tackled by everyone including corporations such as yourselves I would just love to know a little bit about your perspective on what challenges we're seeing currently facing our food system so our food systems are at crisis aren't they they're at crossroads and 
We're one of the world's largest plant-based food companies. So we have a huge responsibility. We also have a huge opportunity in order to get this right. I certainly find it extremely worrying that, you know, I have 30,000 species of plants. Four are currently supplying over 66% of our calories. My goodness, how on earth has that happened? Well, we're wonderfully efficient, aren't we, in monoculture? And we need to make sure that we introduce things like diversity. So how do we encourage our product formulations, our new recipes, to have a rich diversity of plant-based ingredients? Uh, And we feel very, very passionate about that. And we're invited into millions of homes throughout the world. And we have, as I said, a large responsibility but a beautiful opportunity to start introduce plant diversity so we can encourage different spending habits, different behavioural habits, because we know that kind of human health and planetary health go hand in hand. But ultimately, we've got to have delicious food at the centre of that, that are providing nutrients of need, that are sustainably sourced, and we all have a role to play in that. Absolutely. So what are some of those products that you're currently selling that have that diversity of ingredients like cornflakes are they what's the base of that is that a kind of wheat based product or no it's corn it is actually maize it is maize yeah. it is literally a kernel of okay. corn that's that's kind of literally rolled and baked yeah so with cornflakes obviously with that original recipe you can't look at diversity of plant-based ingredients. What we've got to do is make sure we get the sourcing right for that. So we feel really passionately about sustainable sourcing there. But with new recipes or indeed existing recipes, we can encourage greater plant diversity. And indeed, we've kind of created kind of tools and metrics internally to encourage our kind of culinary experts, our chefs, and our food developers and curators um, to think really carefully about that working hand in hand with our colleagues from supply chain and procurement to get the supply chain right and encouraging that rich, diverse recipe mix. So another question, why is working in partnerships key to addressing food system issues? We have to work in partnerships. No one can do this alone. You know, we have to make sure that we're partnering with organizations like the Chef's Manifesto. For me, that's a beautiful, beautiful partnership. I just can't tell you how aligned we are with your manifesto areas that you've identified and how important that is for us at Kellogg's. But importantly, you're taking something that could be considered lofty, academic, you know, even internally in Kellogg's. I talk about, you know, the UN goals and you, you, you show the pictures and it looks like periodic table. You know, we have to translate that. And Chef's Manifesto did the most amazing job of translating what could be quite scary goals that look very political to the everyday, to the food that you put on the table, to the food that you buy in the supermarket, to the food that you enjoy with your friends and your loved ones, to the food that you want to cook and the waste that you're thinking about as well. And so not only the Chef's Manifesto, but other partnerships that we work with, you know, such as food banks, such as breakfast clubs. There's many, many partnerships that are so critical. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, And one last question before we finish. It's another big one. I would like to know how you believe we can encourage the affordability and accessibility of food globally. In terms of affordability and accessibility, because the two are important, 
we think very carefully about this. We have um, something that's called the affordability pyramid in Kellogg's and it's a lens in which we apply to make sure that we've got affordable options that are providing nutrients of need, they're accessible in all kind of spectrums of kind of income. And so uh, we think really, really, really carefully about that throughout the world. And we also, as part of our kind of um, clause platforms, we want to make sure that we are partnering with food banks and breakfast clubs to give uh, back, actually, to provide servings of food that's going to nourish and delight people. And so, for example, over the last couple of years, we provided actually three billion servings of, of food through those kind of causes. And so not only through our kind of commercial operations are we thinking about that, but actually through our cause partnerships too. It's very important. Amazing. It's all so impressive. I mean, you're talking about such huge quantities of food and the impact that has on environment is is massive. So it's great to hear that you're really taking sustainability seriously and looking at how we can improve our food system. Well, we've each, everyone has got a role to play. So me as a mummy, me as a dietitian, me as actually thinking about my role as well-being in Kellogg's. Unless we start making those small steps every single day, we're never going to reach those goals, which are so critical for us for the future. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation before you head off? Just I feel really passionate about our global cause um, platform. It's called Better Days, and we're committed to making a change for three billion communities in the future. And we'll do that through the food that we provide, so feeding people in need, uh, nurturing our planet, and nourishing with our foods, but all in the spirit of our founders' values, WK Kellogg, which ultimately was the original pioneering well-being. Amazing. Thank you, Alison. Thank you. My next guest on this episode started cooking in 1988. After a three-year apprenticeship with the Rue brothers, he went on to work at Kensington Place and then to River Cafe, where he became head chef. He was instrumental in relaunching Chaconi's restaurant, restyling Peacham Nursery's cafe and was executive chef for Jamie Oliver at the East London Restaurant 15. Arthur Potts Dawson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. So seeing as you are, you know, the man, you're the one of the first chefs that kind of launched the Chef's Manifesto, I'd love to know from you, starting from a kind of top level question, what you think a sustainable restaurant looks like? Well, sustainable restaurants operate in in different ways all over the planet. I think we have to be careful to begin to to judge what one restaurant does over another to then instantly say, well, you're not doing enough. I think that's the big mistake. Everyone says, oh, sustainable restaurant, if you're not doing it, then you're you're being very naughty. But actually, the best that a restaurant can do is be as sustainable as they can be on that site. Because you've got so many different limitations across this planet, whether or not it's air conditioning or fire regulations or waste management systems. But, you know, if you're looking for an optimum space, you were to look at your energy management, your water management, your carbon management. You're to look at uh, whether or not you're going to put meat on the menu or deal with fish. I mean, sustainability covers a, a myriad of different things that we have to be very careful not to tar the whole thing with one brush. But sustainability in the restaurant industry needs to be probably the driving force that is now used to design any type of food system, whether it's a a pop-up tent in a field all the way through to a massive hotel being built in 
Dubai, for example, mm -hmm. and each one of them has to consider its energy use, the impact of the footprint that the building has. So sustainability, you know, what's a sustainable restaurant? It, it, it's probably one of the most difficult questions to ask, but it has to bear in mind if people are going to come here and consume, what type of impact are those people having on the planet? Because we need to take their impact and lessen it. So if yeah. we are going to put meat on the menu, what type of meat are we going to put? Are we going to be purely plant-based? Because if we are, it could have a lot less impact. But if you're then looking at uh, sustainable farming systems, that I suggest involves animals. So, you know, it's not just one solution to sustainability. It is thousands that all need to be considered. And we can't all do every single one of them, I suppose. Precisely. And I think that every chef across the planet is doing certainly their bit, um, or every chef that claims sustainability, because I know some amazing chefs are doing some brilliant work, and they do it on waste waste management, or energy management, or water management, or carbon sequestration, or they're, or they're vegan, or they're looking at really good animal husbandry. And I think that if all of us you know, pull together this sense of knowledge that we all have around specific areas then anyone looking for sustainable solutions in the restaurant industry will be able to say, well, that works for me. That works for the system that I'm involved in in this country on this part of the planet. Because it's not just about big cities. It's about restaurants that are in villages and, and towns and, and boats. And, you know, food is everywhere all over the planet. And it needs to be considered all to be sustainable. Yeah. And you, I mean, you don't need a lot of money to necessarily be a sustainable restaurant, do you? No, I think that actually the more money you spend, the less sustainable you are, if that makes any sense. Some of the earlier restaurants that I built were all about money saving because I couldn't afford to build them with anything. I didn't have very much money. So suddenly your dry stores became the walls inside your restaurant, which showed off all the produce that people could buy if they wanted to, which meant that you could get more customers in. You didn't have space being taken up by um, uh, your dry stores. I didn't have space for a walk-in fridge, which meant that we didn't consume as much energy. That meant we had to use our produce that wasn't refrigerated. I've suggested that the flavour was better. And so suddenly, if you don't spend enough, if you don't spend a lot of money, you can actually end up impacting on the planet less. One way I like to think of a sustainable restaurant is kind of like in reference to a well definition of sustainability which has three main pillars, as you know, I'm sure, profit, people and planet. Mm. And so kind of for me, it's about taking us like rather than just always placing profit first, it's about considering how our business affects or generates not only profit, but impact on people and the planet. Mm. And there's obviously various ways that you can measure that or, you, you know, a lot of it actually can just be purely intuitive as well. Mm. But it's about kind of broadening and, and you know, kind of changing uh, the way we approach business so that it's not just purely profit driven. Well, it's interesting, Tom, that you say business because we're living in, um, you know, a capitalist world now and the rest of the world is trying to catch up with the Western world being this sort of hugely successful capitalist environment where profit is, you know, key. You need to see double digit growth and everything needs to become hugely successful so that you can make money and you can retire on a yacht in the Mediterranean. Actually, I've been working now for about eight years on looking at taking that business model because a business model usually involves something called a key performance indicator, KPIs. What are your KPIs? Oh, we're going to drive profit. We're going to make sure people come to this restaurant. We're going to make sure that we make a lot of money. And in order to, to, show your, to, to show the trajectory of profit, you have to show what the performance indicators are. 
The problem is, is we're not building the future of the planet into those KPIs. So looking at sustainability from a purely business perspective, we have to change the KPIs of the capitalist system to say, does this business impact on the water table less? Does this business, is this manager managing their waste system so well inside this business that we're going to give them a raise? Not because they're making more profit, it's because they're lessening the impact of this business. So I think the KPIs of capitalism need to change. And the restaurant industry would be a great place to show that, to say, as a manager, I'll pay you a bonus if you can reduce the amount of cardboard coming into this business. That's a KPI. Same for water, same for gas, same for everything. So from a business perspective, change the KPIs to deliver sustainability. Brilliant. So you're an advocate for the World Food Programme. It would be great to know a bit about what that involves and what projects you've been working on with them. Mm. Well, the World Food Programme, I've worked on a number of projects with them. Initially, we were looking at understanding what goes into feeding people at the front line, at the emergency front line of, of people starving, either because of a famine, a pestilence or a war. And I was approached by the World Food Programme about three years ago and they said, well, we're looking to try and create something healthy, not hungry. And the idea is, is that we needed to get people from not just being hungry, but we needed to get them to be healthy. Because if it was just a hunger issue, then you would be constantly topping them up with emergency rations, emergency biscuits, getting them some water, throwing some beans and rice at them and just stopping them from being hungry. But that doesn't help people. You need to make sure that these people are no longer hungry and healthy. And as soon as you can get people healthy, then they can start to build and rebuild their communities that have been shattered by war or by famine. And so that was the initial conversation with the World Food Programme that I helped them to deliver um, their first initiative that I was involved in, which was Healthy Not Hungry. So that was that was amazing. And then we were looking at counting the beans, which was understanding the discrepancy between different the price of food across the planet in different types of communities. So let's say in New York, you could put a bowl of soup together with some bolotti beans, some celery, um, maybe a little veg stock, and it would cost you about a dollar. If you took the like-for-like like equivalent to the Yemen, you know, and, and to, to a Yemeni market where inflation was through the roof, war was rife, and just some beans, some celery, if you could get it, would, would have cost you nearly $360 in comparison. So you can imagine the differences on the planet, the discrepancies between food that's readily available and costing practically nothing, whereas on the front line, food costs an absolute fortune. And if you don't understand the differences between the price of food on different places around the planet, then you're really not aware of what's happening on the planet. So that was another really interesting one. Then there was the waste not, want not, you know, really stop throwing your food away. Uh, we need to build um, resilience in the in food systems by getting people to recognise that, that throwing food away is, is impacting on the planet so dramatically that, you know, water resource, energy resource, distribution and logistics. And the World Food Programme wanted to really raise the awareness of, of that. And I've been involved with the World Food Programme now. Uh, I was uh, uh, invited to travel to Ethiopia last year to look at the school feeding programme. And the school feeding programme is something that, that for 35p a day, they feed, I think, over 40,000 children a lunch at school. And one of the issues that they're facing out there was that they asked me to come out and say, from a chef's perspective, what would it look like to improve the quality of food that's been given to children who, under the age of seven, if they're not given the proper nutrition, brain function doesn't develop well enough, they're stunting, not growing well enough. And it was also part of that, that the school feeding program was about educating young girls because they're not getting the breakout 
of what is regular in society there, which is sort of very young, married off, lots of children, but no opportunity there through education or development to become potentially what they, they could become if they weren't sort of married off. And so the school feeding program was really an interesting way of, of saying, well, okay, we need to not just localise the food system, grow food and corn and maize, uh, beans, different types of uh, um, plant-based proteins, but we need to get something else in there. We need to get fresh vegetables in there. We need to get fresh fruit into their diet because it's all very well feeding the corn and beans every day, but it's just not enough nutritionally. So I was in there and I went in and we uh, cooked some local pumpkins. We put some mango together. Um, I did some teff pancakes there, which are um, so much better for them than just this literally beans and rice. And it's a beans and corn every day. And then, of course, you start to look at the soil. And you say, well, all they're doing is planting corn and beans in, this, in the soil. And the soil really starts to take a battering because they're using fertilizer, seed, and the soil is not being looked after. So year after year, they're putting in the same seed and the same fertilizer, but not strengthening the soil quality. So I got a big suggestion, and, and I've been talking to the World Food Programme a lot about improving soil quality, reducing the amount of fertilizer required, will actually increase both biodiversity and healthy stomachs, better nutrition, better minds, and better growth. So my involvement with the World Food Programme has not just been really just ambassadorial. It's been advocate where... I've been invited to influence and innovate at this grassroots level with chefs at Onbed Gardens where we have the advocacy hub, the World Food Programme advocacy hub, where we then sort of show off what the World Food Programme does there. And we've created something now which is going to launch this year, which is called the, the Chef's Table, World Food Programme Chef's Table, where we're going to invite chefs, such as yourself, Tom, I hope you're going to sign up, to come and cook for 12 people at your own little chef's table where you'll cook and talk about your sustainable narrative. With the World Food Programs, men, you know, uh, mentoring to say, well, why don't you talk about the school feeding program? Or why don't you talk about waste not want not? Or why don't you talk? We've got these themes, and the invitees will be sitting at your table, and then let's say in the next part of the restaurant, Anahita coming from India to talk about her sustainable practices, tying into the World Food Program. So, it's it's very much about not just an ambassador standing up with a flag. Advocacy is about innovation and influencing people at this level. You know, talk to chef, chef to chef, chef to customer, customer to their friend. And that, I think, is where we're getting traction. So World Food Programme, I think, has changed its, its tact a little bit and has found if you can get lots of advocates to fly a flag around understanding nutrition, understanding waste, understanding calories, suddenly they'll get a lot more information to the general public. You mentioned soil there, and I know that's something you're incredibly passionate about. I'd love to know kind of your thought have a little or a few more thoughts on how you think soil is important in this narrative hmm. well interesting i approached soil about 15 years ago and when i first started um considering my own restaurants where you know as a chef i was very lucky to have been taken to the finest olive groves in tuscany to the most amazing grape growers in in france to unbelievable cheese makers in 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 the u.s and every time as a chef you're taken to a producer's uh, field or uh, to their vineyard or to their olive grove, yes, you see the fruits and you, and, you, and you see the fruits of their labor, but it's all coming out of the ground. And if as a chef you're not reaching down into the ground that you've been invited to and pick it up and smell it and understand the chalky, flinty or deep peatiness that comes out in the cheese or it comes out in the wine or it comes out in the olive oil, because that's what a chef looks at, flavor. And it comes out of the ground. So from a chef's perspective, you say, okay, I get it. It's all about soil. Then I started to put together and say, well, I know that if it comes out of the soil and it gets all the way to my restaurant, if I don't take that and compost anything and put it back into the soil, 
then suddenly I'm wasting a part of this food cycle. So suddenly you start to say, okay, compost. Composting, carbon sequestration, because carbon, because you know, as you become a sustainable chef, you realize there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. And one of the biggest ways that we can prevent it from going in the atmosphere is by putting it back in the soil. Soil is like a carbon sink. It's a bank that you can put carbon into. So soil suddenly begins to give you more solutions than deliciousness. Right? So then I think, focus, soil, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if it's healthy soil and there's a really healthy microbiome in that soil, loads of worms, loads of beetles, loads of mushrooms, loads of fungi, lots of stuff happening in that soil, and it's giving us vegetables, those vegetables are giving us, in turn, a healthy gut. And for me, healthy gut leads to healthy thinking. Healthy thinking can lead to consciousness and an understanding of planetary scale. So from a chef's perspective, without soil, we're nothing. We need flavor, but it also harbors carbon uh, and it also allows us to deliver a healthy gut. And I think that every chef and every person on this planet needs to be focusing on soil more and more because without it, we don't exist. Absolutely. It's easy to forget that vitamins and minerals in our food are literally the vitamins and minerals that were in that soil. Yeah. Kind of. Well, this was the issue that, that I was really driving home with the World Food Programme is, is that, you know, if you plant a corn kernel into the ground and the soil is empty, it's got nothing in it. It's like a, a sand. It would just blow. If you blow on it, it just blows. If you just, you know, a quick blow and it will just go away with the wind. It's not being held together. It needs plants in it to hold it together. It needs worms in it to work the carbon back into the system. And you begin to really understand that the corn will only grow by fertilizer. And that fertilizer is coming in from Russia or Morocco. It's, it's, it, you, know, it's, you have to wear gloves when you use it. And you think, hang on a minute. There's nothing in the soil. This corn is being grown with fertilizer alone. They're praying for rain. What are these people going to be getting out of this corn? Nothing. I mean, literally nothing. So, yeah, soil is, is the absolute focus for both Ombe Gardens, the World Food Programme, the Chef's Manifesto, and it should be, you know, on every chef's tongue. So you just mentioned Omved on, on Gardens. Mm, It'd be good to if you could tell us a little bit about mm. what that is. Well, Omved Gardens is a project actually that's been put together by an amazing um, couple who looked at trying to get more of a story of both urban growing, soil health, community engagement in understanding the importance of seeds community coming together around seeds and soil and growing and harvesting and cooking and and in that we do different workshops we host the chef's manifesto quite early on the chef's manifesto's early days were, were written at the, at the ombre gardens with a number of chefs coming in invited in to, to to lay out what the chef's manifesto becomes and you know the ombre gardens has a a beautiful kitchen that looks out over an unbelievable greenhouse, which can be, you know, you can have amazing dinners, but you can also have, um, it's an art gallery, and we've had live music, and we've had garden tours. But what's interesting about it is it's not a restaurant. And a lot of people say, well, you know, it should be a restaurant. You should do a restaurant with it. But the problem is with the restaurant nowadays is they're hugely impactful on the environment. So what we want to try and be is an innovative space and an influencing space that allows chefs to come and look at it and say, what are the solutions that we could use in our restaurant that Ombre Gardens is doing without being a restaurant? Well, we're growing food and we're growing food as locally as possible. But if we can't grow it here, then we're building relationships with our allotments or our um, orchards or our local organic supply chain. We're composting on site we've got our wormeries turning up we've got different ways of um, dealing with our glass and cardboard and lots of different ways that, that look at finding solutions for an urban environment to consume food in 
So Omveg Gardens is the Chef's Manifesto London Action Hub. Could you tell us a definition of a Chef's Manifesto Action Hub and also kind of what you're pursuing as the London Action mm. Hub? Well, the Chef's Manifesto, in its in its youth, needed to find a space where it could open up a, uh, a space for dialogue that, that, that chefs could talk to chefs without being pressurised. Chefs are quite precious about who they are and what they do because their identity is in their food. And going into another person's restaurant, let's say, or another environment of food, can sometimes be quite pressurising or can set people's, you know, can get their hairs up a bit. Oh, you know, she's cooking like that, so I can't really get involved here. Whereas the Chef's Manifesto, the Chef's Manifesto when, when it was, when Obvid Gardens became the Chef's Manifesto Action Hub, it said, come and just be, come and share, come and tell your stories about what you're doing around the world. And in that, began to ratchet up the action capacity of all these chefs to say, well, actually, I've met all these other chefs doing all these other things, and they're not precious about it. They're sharing. And in that sharing environment, trust was built. And trust between chefs is, a, is, a, is an important um, tool for people to begin to communicate and break down the barriers that, that were surrounding sustainability. So Onfe Gardens was, opened its doors to chefs from all over the planet. For Well, initially we had this this... I guess it was a birthday. It was the first time we ever did it. It was the sort of global meeting of chefs at Ombre Gardens. And we had a blast. We cooked, we talked, we had a few drinks. And in that, I think the Chef's Manifesto kind of found its identity. Um, there, there is another action hub now in, in Waterford in Southern Ireland. I still like to think that, that Ombre Gardens has this, is the global action hub. You know, it's the place where once a year, all the chefs from all over the planet, you know, from a Chef's Manifesto perspective, turn up to share in recipes, in cooking, in just sitting down and having a really good talk about how we can impact more sustainably on the planet. So it's, it's a great space for chefs to come and be involved in. It's a gorgeous space too. It's beautiful. Five acres of land, big old garden, huge greenhouse, great kitchen. If you're listening to this and you're not a Chef's Manifesto chef, join up now and come and get involved. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been to a few of those action hubs and they are just a really exciting space, aren't they, where you're just rubbing shoulders with people from Peru and Ethiopia, all over the world, who are cooking together and just kind of learning from each other in terms of what sustainability means on a global scale. Mm. But before we go, I'd just like to ask you a couple of kind of top-level kind of quick questions, really, because I think you've got an incredible perspective and, and way of communicating that I think can help other people understand how they can get involved and, and really kind of start driving change themselves. So the first one is, what role can chefs play generally in driving progress on the sustainable development goals? It's a big question, but just kind of some kind of top top level advice on things and ways that people can get involved and help really kind of connecting. Well, it's important for chefs to understand that they're just a conduit for food. And if a chef can identify and work with their supply chain, and their producers at grassroots level and into the soil and make sure that they're communicating the best practice to their customer. So really what a chef's job is to marry the consumer with the producer and find the most sustainable sourced ingredient you can. Use as little meat as possible, as little fish as possible. I appreciate that the consumer is still demanding it from you so you need to sell it but if you do reduce the 
amount of it, but increase the quality of it. Inside that, tell the story of where you're getting it from, who's making it, why it's important, why soil health is vital. And if you're not going to be organic, still advocate good soil health. Consumer, producer. Chef, you're just in the middle. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Arthur. Always a pleasure. Um, And I've learned a lot. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for having me. With my next guest, I caught up during the Eat Forum in Stockholm last summer. It's an immense pleasure to have South African chef Lorna Maseko on the Chef's Manifesto podcast. A ballet dancer turned celebrity TV chef, Lorna's culinary adventures began when she took part in the first celebrity South African master chef. Chef Lorna has since launched a series of cooking events and blogs titled Cooking with Lorna and Friends and also presents The Hostess with Lorna Maseko, a lifestyle reality series. This is Lorna Maseko from South Africa. I'm a TV personality and celebrity chef. Um, I have a fun, quirky cooking show on ACBC3, which is just about allowing people to just not be intimidated by being in the kitchen, I guess, and having fun. So, yeah. Brilliant. What is your go-to breakfast at home? If you've got a lazy Sunday, what would you make? Oh, okay. So usually I'm a coffee person, so I need coffee before I can even like articulate a word out of my mouth. But I would say a go-to breakfast would either be Egg Benedict, I think, with hollandaise sauce and salmon. I think that seems like something that is a go-to. And avocado, because I just love avocado. But yeah, I think that's the go-to. I'm not big on breakfast, but... If it if it was if if I was big on breakfast, that's what I'd have. Delicious. So you've come over from South Africa today. Absolutely, very um, exciting. First yeah. time in Stockholm, which is super super cool, and it's been on my bucket list for a very long time. So to be here with a bunch of really really cool chefs is amazing. And kind of what better excuse than the Eat Forum? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, having seen the kind of work they do, it's just phenomenal to even, you know, be on the same, not even platform, I shouldn't even call it that. But I think for me, the biggest thing is about empowering myself so that I'm able to be better at what I do. And I think that's the most important thing. I think it's about learning. It's about growing. It's about then going home and empowering people because essentially, you know, I I would imagine um, forums like this are about educating people so that when you go back into your communities, you're doing better for the the planet. You're doing better for people. Um, And so for me, if, if I'm growing, I'm happy and learning, I'm happy. And so back home, you've got a great platform through the media and through your TV show. Yeah. Is there an element of kind of nutrition education within that program? Or? You know what? It, it's it's small because my show is very much more in, more entertainment based than it is about, you know, educating people. But I think the more, you know, since becoming part of Chef's Manifesto, doing a lot of stuff with Noor and Future 50 Foods and that kind of thing, I've become a lot more aware, meaning even just my natural speak that wouldn't have been necessarily about sustainable food or plant-based produce has grown in itself. So I think from just doing that, I'm even seeing it on my social media pages where, you know, it's getting better. But in the beginning, I would have posted like, oh, you know, like meat-free Monday. No one would have really like cared. But now, you know, I'm finding interesting ways of of making meat-free Mondays fun, I think, Mm -hmm. and not so oh my gosh, no, I'm not vegetarian type thing. You know, that kind of, it's not a stigma, but like I, I think people generally in South Africa love meat. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> I, can, I can see that. 
what would be interesting to talk a little bit about is kind of this idea of the importance of accessibility and affordability when it comes to food yeah. in our various countries. Yeah. I mean, in South Africa, Tom, the truth of the matter is like, organic food is expensive and so you can't expect somebody who earns less than 3,000 rand a month to go buy organic spinach and maybe they'll rather grow it themselves actually in their home and perhaps it's about educating people to farm to have little gardens because that's like I don't want to say that's easy but it's it's a way of kind of empowering yourself as well um you know as I was sharing with you earlier like in South Africa, if you don't have, if you're just eating plant-based food, you're seen as somebody who has no money or, you know, it's a, it's a sign of poverty in, in a sense, you know. Um, I have friends that grew up just eating, for example, bap, which is um, a grain that we use in South Africa that's very common, and with, like, cabbage, or they'll have it with, like, morojo, and that's that's dinner that's pap is breakfast pap is lunch and so then you say to that person oh we're now trying to build this culture of having mm-hmm. eating plant-based food they're like i've been eating yeah. plant plant-based food since i was little and for me that's a sign of poverty or sign mm-hmm. sign of you know, not being really well off because all the other kids that went to like better schools or whatever always yeah. had meat in their dishes or you get invited to their families and they'll be slaughtering a cow or a goat or whatever mm. so it, you know it to then educate people to say this way is probably better not just for today but for future for for the future is is what's i think very important and i think what what is really important that we remember yeah. is that these messages around kind of like reducing meat consumption and like a plant-based diet aren't necessarily appropriate for everyone yeah. around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Different people need to eat different things. Yeah. If you're living in the Arctic, you need to you need to eat whale, perhaps. Right, I, mean, I get you. Whereas if you if you know if you're living in a in a wealthy um, country, it's yeah. it's actually a really, really, really inappropriate. Mm, mm. And so I think it's really important that we're, like we're sensitive as chefs when we yeah, discuss these ideas because when it comes down to it, it's um, people who are living in poverty have a very, very low impact on the environment, Mm. no Mm. matter what they're doing, Mm. even if they're eating meat, Mm. you know, actually, you know, if you need to survive, you need to survive. Mm. We're human. Mm. But when it comes down to it, it's it's the people that can afford to to eat meat that need to eat a bit less. That's a good point. So I think that's, you know, that's those are the people that we need to talk to about kind of eating, eating those foods, because you're right, people other people have been eating plant but that's that's all they can that's afford. all that's all they could afford and also if you think about it when you go into the rural areas in South Africa mo- not most most people in the rural area actually probably have some kind of little morocco garden some kind of vegetables that they grow you know a couple of chickens and that is sustainability right there absolutely in a very smart way and if you're growing up in that era you saw that as poverty so you come to let's say upmarket santon or johannesburg and the last thing you want to do is grow your own kind of produce grow your own you know simple things that you can do you know they're those beautiful kind of like boxes where you can plant like coriander and mint and those kinds of things um and you think i'm not going to do that i'm not going to bring you know, rural living to the city. You know what I mean? Because you've always seen it. So I think it's so important to also try and educate people on it's actually not that bad. And the interesting ways of eating 
uh, plant-based food. I remember, I think I went vegetarian when I used to be a ballet dancer and it was like so miserable because I went first, I went vegetarian for a year and I think I went vegan for like one month and I just couldn't. And because at the time, vegan food was really super, super expensive and I couldn't really afford it. And so even then at the time being vegetarian, it was kind of hard because... It wasn't as sexy and as interesting as it is now. You know, I think about part of the future 50 foods. I don't even know if I'm, but they're peanuts, but they're not peanuts. They've got another name that my dad used to. You've got the manual down there. It might behind you. It might even be in there. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you exactly what they are. And my dad used to buy those things at the taxi rank for like five rand. And now the challenge is you, you now sell them at a organic store. And now you're saying that, somebody must buy that for like 200 rand or 100 rand and you're mm-hmm. like um, no thanks <laughs> it's still 10 rand at the taxi rank do you know what I mean yeah um, so it, I don't know if it's also just a matter of like governments changing their systems or policies and that it just needs to be fair right mm. um, we can't advocate for change I think personally but it's not a full circle it's because then it's only just for a selected few yeah in no. a country like South Africa I don't know how the rest of the world or other countries operate, you know. Um, I guess it's, yeah. it's often children that are kind of just unfortunately suffer from the worst poverty, especially when it comes yeah. to nutrition. So that that's something I'm interested in kind of looking into within my own work is how can I support school meals um, or charities that can that help provide meals for children? Because even even in Britain, there's not even in Britain, but like some people think, you know, obviously the UK is a, a rich country in some in many ways, but actually yeah. there's a huge amount of poverty there and children without food. So it's a real pri- priority when yeah. it comes to, um, yeah, the work we we do as chefs. I've, I've, I think I'd like to start um, visiting schools to yeah. help teach children how, how they can start to cook more sustainably because I guess it's the children that are driving this interest in climate change as well which is really interesting yeah yeah absolutely i think um i can only speak for south africa but i think for a country like south africa i definitely think i'm starting it at those grassroots levels is like super important because i think you would start breaking that stigma from there and so if they see like oh lorna eats you know as somebody who has a following eats plant-based food or foods at certain times or you know cooks it or enjoys it maybe it's not that bad you know mm. what I mean? Um, I think if I think about it, what I guess what I see being a television person is Jamie does it, Jamie Oliver does it, it or tries to do it at least, and it seems like it's advocating some kind of change mm. or awareness rather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'm, well, I'm asking the chefs today to tell me a little bit about an ingredient that yeah. is dear to them that grows in their country that may have some kind of relation to the she- to the manifesto point. Is there a, like a super nutritious, affordable ingredient that you love? Oh, sure. I think there are quite a few. Like, okay, so like the inoki mushrooms, like I absolutely, absolutely inoki love them. Inoki mushrooms. I mean, they're super expensive. <laughs> they're yeah. not cheap in my country. Yeah. But love them. And like, I'm completely all about that. Um, I think a spinach being... It's something that you grew up with as a child, right? And I think what I'm appreciating more as I as I get more involved in learning is the fact that it doesn't have to taste as horrible as it did back then. Because <laughs> <laughs> now they 
you know, because the truth of the matter is, Tom, it's like, as I was saying, like you grew up with Morocco, you grew up with these beans or grains or whatever, and then your mom or whoever was cooking them, and it was just like you're eating it because... I mean, there was nothing else to eat or you were yeah. going to starve. So you had a choice, <laughs> choose one type thing, right? And then you become more, I guess, you grow up, you become more affluent or whatever, and you like nicer things. So you you go for the caviars and the, you know, the <laughs> wagyu beef and you, you know, and then and then the world says, okay, no, we're, we're going to go back there, but we're going to change it a little bit so that it's a little bit more... I don't use the word sexy, but it's a lot more tastier, the more interesting ways of doing it. It doesn't have to be just morojo with the stems and cooked with salt and water. Yeah. You can be very creative by it. You could wrap it up with other vegetables. You could, you know what I mean? The interesting things that you can do that are easy, fun, and still tasty. And I think that's where, if I had to think about like people that I know in South Africa and the people that maybe follow me on social media, that's... That's a tier you're trying to help to say, no, 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 don't worry. It's, it doesn't have to be the way your aunt cooked it and you hated it and you had nothing else to eat, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, you can get creative and, yeah. and imaginative with these things. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thank you for chatting. Thank you. And that's all for this series of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Thank you for listening and being part of it. And please do continue to spread the word about the Chef's Manifesto. All of our episodes are available to listen to, so if you missed any of our previous conversations, please do seek them out, enjoy and share them. And if you liked our podcast, please review it. Your feedback is invaluable and will certainly inform our approach to our next podcast series. For more information on our goals and what we do, please visit chefsmanifesto.com or follow us on Instagram at chefsmanifesto. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. A celebration of local and seasonal food. I focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>